Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 and verse 33. Classic verses, perhaps the central theme in the Sermon on the Mount, because it covers so much and it says so much in just a short sentence. But it says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Verse 31, Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For all these things the Gentiles seek after it. And your Father knows that you need all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and most of these things shall be added unto you as God thinks you need them. Well, that's the new modern translation. Let me give you the old original here. <laughs> Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We're talking tonight about the Christian priority of seeking first the kingdom of God or simply in seeking God's kingdom. Now, we know that phrase. We use that phrase in Christianity a lot. Most people who are familiar with Scripture can quote Matthew 6 and verse 33. But I don't know how many people really know what it means. I hope we know what it means. I hope that we know it well enough that we can say to whoever listens that seeking God's kingdom is a priority with God. It's for us. It's a priority for us from the Lord to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to live in the expectation or the hope of all these things God knows you need will be added and given unto you. Now, that's the way we're supposed to live, but it all begins with whether or not we make seeking first the kingdom a priority. Priority means something that is first of importance or affection. The right, that's where you start, seeking first as a priority. Now, the last time we were talking about anxiety, worry, fretting, things that cause stress and so many medical problems. Not all of them, but a lot of them are caused by stress and anxiety. And specifically, he said we're not to take thought, from verse 25 to the end of this chapter, we're not supposed to take thought about our life in this world, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, what about tomorrow, what will we do, how are we going to... He said... This is what the Gentiles, or he speaks to the Gentiles as the world. This is what they do. This is why they argue and they fight and they fall out and, and the world is in so much turmoil. People are always wanting more and greedy for more and worrying about if they'll ever have theirs. And Jesus said to his disciples, which would be you if you're one of them, he said, take no thought. Don't worry about it. Take no thought is a mental word, is to be divided and distracted in your mind, to be tossed in different directions, or to be uncertain. That's why your faith doesn't work when you're worrying, because you're not sure what you ought to do. A double-minded man, James speaks of. He told us that we're not supposed to worry about anything. He said, take no thought five times. Take no thought. Now, I don't know how many times you read the Sermon on the Mount or this part of it, before you realize that God really is against us with his promises worrying about anything. What could we possibly fret about or worry about that God has not promised to do something about? Our whole life, as we walk through life, there is nothing we face that God has not given us a provision for. That means, doesn't mean we're not going to suffer, not going to have pain and tribulation and trials and be in discomfort. All of that's promised too. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So we know that's coming. But we also know that, that my God shall supply all of your need. Whatever your need is, whether it's mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, God said he would supply your need. So 
we're not to worry about things. The forecast of some kind of a health issue or symptoms or something, you know they're real, they're, they're serious, you're not trying to ignore that. But we also know that God has a promise about that. That's why faith is so important, because that's how, we, that's how we appropriate for ourselves the things that God has promised. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. If God says in the word this or something is so, you can believe that. You can't just make up something to believe and then expect God to do that. Faith comes here by hearing, hearing the word of God. As you know, faith doesn't make the word true. The word isn't true because you believe it. The word is true whether you believe it or not. It's true simply because God said it. And the effect that's truth is supposed to have on you is to make you free from worry and anxiety about what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, you're supposed to say, we'll trust the Lord. Blessed is a man that trusts the Lord. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. You remember that in Isaiah 26 and I think verse 3 said, thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Have you heard that? Okay. And he ends that verse by saying, because he trusteth in thee. And your testimony to the world as one who's been brought out of darkness, out of the miry clay, and your feet are set up on a rock, and, and God does things in your heart, puts a new song in your mouth, and so forth. He said, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. I mean, there's something there that frees us up from what are we going to do? Well, God says, do this. And we say, okay, we will do that. We are counting on you to do for us what you said. Therefore, I will take no thought about what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there for my body, my health. I cast all of my, help me, First Peter 5, casting all your, care upon him. Or as the psalmist said, lay your burden on the Lord. He cares for you. And that's what we're supposed to do. There are things that bother all of us. There are things that pester us in the spiritual realm. There are things that make us feel very uncomfortable, very uncertain. We're uncomfortable because we're uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, how it's going to turn out, what's going. And so we're, un, we're, we're not comfortable. And it bothers us, and we rub our hands, and we want to get on the phone and call. Well, what do you think? Well, what, that's not what we do. Worry produces worry. You get two people worried, and you got a lot of worry. You need to talk to somebody that knows what they believe before you get on there and talk to somebody that's not sure about what they believe. But the more you fret and worry because of your uncertainties, the more you find yourself unable to use your faith. You can say, oh, I'm trusting God. You can, you can say anything. But your heart will betray you with what you say later on. Well, I'm trusting. I'm just counting on God, but what are we going to do? And so that's what worry does to people. That's what our uncertainty about tomorrow does to us. It not only binds us, it limits us. It defeats us. Though we know the truth, it's not making us free because we're not believing it. We're acknowledging it. We're aware of it. We're just not believing it. We're not counting on it. That's why in, in such a thing as this, that Jesus said to them, Oh, you of little faith. said that in the Bible. He said that to his disciples four times. Oh, you of little faith. And various reasons. Remember last week we said that? Oh, you have little faith. Why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? Why are you uncertain? Why are you forgetful? God doesn't, God doesn't bring us to a place where it's okay not to believe. Because he's got to be who he is in such a way that nothing is impossible with him. And he's asked me to believe and trust in him. I can do this. And I will. That's why we're so loud when we praise the Lord. That's why we're so jubilant and so grateful to God. It's because we're trusting in the Lord. Amen. Now, in Matthew 6, he said, These things, all these things shall be added to you. In other words, don't elevate worldly needs to be your top priority. Don't live to make money. 
don't live to get and to have and to do. God said he will add all those things to you. Did he not? So don't elevate worldly needs to your top priority. God will add all of that to us in verse 33. This is the mindset. Let this... Uh, there's a verse in the Bible, verse 5 of something, chapter 2, somewhere said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. He never took thought. Maybe when he was on those lonely Galilean hillsides on those cool nights over there. Maybe when he was over there and there scorpions were crawling around, maybe he was a little bit afraid. Or maybe he wasn't. I don't think he's afraid of scorpions. Do you? Or the lions? He had lions then. I don't think he had elephants or a bad camel lived around him, but there were lions. I don't think he was afraid of anything. I don't think he needed a stick, a slingshot, or a good rock. I think he just knew that the promise God made was no evil shall befall me and no plague come now my dwelling. He'll give his angels charge concerning me and they will keep me in all my ways. Or concerning me, God will give his angels charge to keep me in all that I do. And so he didn't need anything else. And he lived the kind of life that we're supposed to follow him. Are we not? Amen. So back to verse 33 again and back things. All these things shall be added to you. Is it wrong for Christians to have things? Now, there are a lot of Christian authors write books about the, the evil of having things, the evil of prosperity. And I think maybe they're talking about having two or three jets and some, some houses around the world, and I don't know what they're talking about. I don't read that stuff that they write. I'm not, even inter I don't, I'm not interested in how they preach or what they say about it. I read a, just a few of their books to know that when you hear one, you've heard them all. But there's a lot of people that have this idea that health and wealth is somehow evil. If health and wealth was evil, then sickness and poverty ought to be spiritual. Well, if one's true, the opposite is also true. If it's wrong for us to have more than enough, which is what prosperity is, if it's wrong for us to have more than we need, needs means sufficiency. Poverty means lack. Prosperity means abundance. You have more than you need. And concerning the things that the world is clamoring over and lying and cheating and stealing and losing their soul over, the things of this world, he said, don't, don't do what they do. You seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Now, let me tell you just two verses here. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 47. Now, as most of you know, Deuteronomy 28 begins with promises. Blessed going in, blessed going out. If you diligently hearken, he begins by keeping the word and obeying his word. Then all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And he, and he lists all these blessings. And you know what? He didn't say there was anything you had to believe in order for that to happen. He just said, you follow me, do things my way, live with respect and regard for me to please me. And he, God said, all these blessings he will cause to come upon you and overtake you. Now, he does that. Now, what in the world is wrong with that? Is there anything sinful about that? Could it affect you in a sinful way? Yes. It's not supposed to. That was not God's intention. You'll be tested, yes. The rich man had a lot of whatever. He was tested. But he said, all these blessings shall come. Now, look in verse 47. This is a part of the book in which he's talking about curses. If you're unwilling to do things, live like God wants, all these curses shall come upon you. None of this should be ours. Are you all still with me? In Deuteronomy 20, none of these curses that are listed are numerous curses. Physical things that never get healed. Things in the family that never go away, they transferred in the family tree from one. They always linger in the family, in the body. They never go away. That should not be. 
Well, that would have been a wonderful point, if you believe that, to say amen. Now, if you didn't say that, maybe you don't believe that. So let me say it again. All these blessings shall come upon you. And if you don't want to live and do things the way God says, for whatever reason, whatever reason, he said, then all these curses shall come. And I think that means a determined resistance to God. All these curses come. And listen to this one in verse 47. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for what? No, wait a minute. I might get through tonight and I might not. I'll get distracted or sidetracked here. But this is a good little trip to take tonight. We'll take a little journey. God expects us, in light of what he has promised and what he has said, he expects us to live in the anticipation of that happening for us. If God said it, God will do it. All he's looking for is somebody to believe it. It doesn't happen because you read it. It doesn't happen because you even acknowledge it. It happens if you believe it. If you count on God to do it and you rest your case with him and expect waiting for it to happen. But God says, because you believe that, you will serve the Lord, two characteristics here, with, with joy, joyfulness, and gladness of heart. The joy of the Lord is my strength. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. Well, does he? Now, either, listen, either he has or he hasn't. Let me ask you something. If God has made all these wonderful promises, if the, if the Bible that you bought, you paid a lot for, that you treasure, carry around with you and take care of, if that book is God's word to you and it contains all these wonderful promises that God has assigned you, well, what would keep you from anticipating joyfully and gladly the, the, the supply of all this? What, keep, what holds you back? How many of you tonight, if outside the door out there to the parking lot, if it was somebody wealthy, had a suitcase full of personal checks, bank checks, all of them are good checks. You could see them when you walk in. There was a big case there, a glass case. You couldn't get to them. There's a big glass case, and there's a big cashier's check with, with your name on it for $15,000 personal to you. You don't have to do anything to get it. You just have to wait till church is over to get it. Now, between now and the end of this meeting, how would you act? I think I was pretty good. You'd be out there just smiling. See, you're not smiling because of where you're getting that old carnal check. All I'm saying is in the anticipation of receiving something that was given, not earned, given, in the anticipation, the expectation of getting that, I should obviously be joyful and cheerful. How many of you believe you're going to heaven? Well, I do too. I don't want you to hold your hand up. But if you believe you're going to heaven, is there any cause of joy there? Sometimes your heart needs to sneak up and grab a hold of your jaw and pull it down and say, hey, you're saved? Oh, yeah. Amen. And you need to tell your face about it. It's our testimony. Rejoice. I think, who was it? Didn't, doesn't the Bible still say this? Rejoice, not because you can cast out devils or that the devil is subject unto you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. And heaven is your home. That's where the windows are when it's time for the pour out season. You know, in due season you shall... You're getting there, and it's God who opens windows and does the pouring out. It's Jesus who made a promise that there is possible for you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. That's a promise. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Paul wrote that, 2 Corinthians 9. Is that possible? We ought to live like that's going to happen. 
Instead of saying, boy, the price of gas, how much is it now? Oh, man. Oh. I did it the other day. You know, gas goes up 30-some cents in one night. Must have been a horrible crisis somewhere in the world. But anyway, gas goes up 30-some cents, and I caught myself going, oh, man, I was going to fill my car up this morning. And I didn't think any more about it. And I got home and got back in my office. I was sitting here going, what's the difference between $3 and 53 cents at $3 and whatever it was. Was it $3 and 12 cents? I filled it up. It was $2. I just left what I was doing on my desk and went down there and filled my car up. $2. You've spent more than that on cappuccino. <laughs> so I went down and filled my car up. I'm not going to be limited by tomorrow or what's going on in the world. My God shall supply, and it's your Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. Now, his kingdom is his realm. That's his reign. That's his dominion. We'll get to that in a minute. But because you serve not the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Do you have in, in your vocabulary of your thinking vocabulary the abundance of all things that's not a chicken in every pot that might be two might be two hens in one pot I don't mean you have to have two chickens to prove godliness is not gain you're not spiritual because you have a lot Delight yourself in the Lord. Didn't he say, Thomas, that he'll give you the desires of your heart? Well, as God's changing us, we don't overload that. Before we got saved, we would have wanted the jackpot. But now that we're Christian, we, the meaning of the importance of things has changed. It really has. Turn to Luke 12 and verse 15. Because this is sort of a, uh, a warning. This is, a, this is the other side of that abundance, prosperity point. The abundance of all things can corrupt you. It's not supposed to. It wasn't intended to, but people seem to get corrupted by it. So Jesus said this, and he said unto them, Luke 12, verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. They're only for this world. God gives us richly all things to what? Enjoy. Amen? The car or the house or the, or, or the trip, the vacation, whatever. I mean, that you have a, the privilege and the joy of having or doing. You never had it before, but you're coming into that now. God is rewarding you. It's just one point in your life when God's blessing comes upon you to, to enjoy life. This is not what life is all about. Life is all about preparation, growing up in him and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what our life is all about. While we're going there with troubles and tribulations and hardships, we need a break every now and then. It's good to be blessed. It's good for something to come your way or uh, that envelope or that something in the mail or whatever or however it comes that, that gets you out of a hole you're in or gets you, when you go, praise God. I mean, it's good to experience things like that. It's good for those things to happen. But he said life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that a man has. Jesus asked a question in Matthew 16. In verse 25, he said, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Or he gains the world which distracted him. He began to taste of the luxuries of life, and he got away from the simplicities of life. And he esteemed the luxury more than the simplicity. And when he got a little bit, he wanted more, and he knew he was getting in too deep when he no longer could give it away. When you get to the place where you dread giving or you can't, oh, it's a, then it's getting a hold on you. That's not what God intended for money to ever do to man. Money should work for us, not us for money. We need money. We, we, we work and we eat and sleep so we can work. But money is not our ruler. 
Money is not our God. And when you get covetous for that, it, money becomes an idol because you think that's what puts you over, that's what makes you whatever you want to be. But Jesus said it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You don't need all those things. Now, he said seek first. Jesus said seek first. What does that mean? Well, it, it could, you could say this, seek only. Seeking. Seeking is something that you do in which you search for something you don't have. It's an activity. It's something you do. You're searching for something. You're looking for something. Not casually, not once a week or twice a week to come and hear what the preacher says. But on a personal level, sitting there in the confines of your mind and your life, which is between you and God, realizing your need and that God has offered to meet your need, but you have to search. Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Didn't he say that? Seek and you shall find. When he said, seek first the kingdom, he is telling me, and I suspect you too, that your greatest need in this life is spiritual. Your greatest need is spiritual. When it becomes your greatest need, and you have to seek for it each day, you become, as the Bible says, poor in spirit. That is, you don't have an overload of the spirit. There's no bank you can put spiritual stuff in for daily guidance and so forth. It has to be given to you. You need it every day. Like the song says that we quote so often, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. I need thee. At what point of any day of the week do you not need the Lord? At what point of any day in your life do you not need direction from the Lord? Aren't our lives supposed to be governed by the realization that God who called us to be his is the one we should seek to trust in and count on to supply all of our needs to protect us, keep us, and save us? It is. It really is. That's what he's supposed to do. If you'll turn to Colossians 3, I want you to follow me. Again, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, 2, and 3. If you then be risen with Christ, seek, search out for heavenly things. Seek those things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. The origin of all spiritual truth comes from there. Every important thing in a man's life comes from there. This is the source for all your abundance and all your needs, your victory, your peace and joy. Everything is there. The God of peace, the joy of Christ, every thing that you need is there. Right now, tonight, with whatever is on your mind, whatever you're going through, your answer is to be found right there. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Notice verse 2. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Your affections The things you need, you may think is in money and goods and stuff, but it's not because money is carnal and things from God are spiritual. They're two different things. But he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added. Now, the kingdom of God for us now is that we can't see it. We're aware of its truths. We keep hearing about all the things that God has given us. He is God over his kingdom. And so as we start seeking for these things and searching for these things or setting our, our goal and our affection upon these things, does he not reveal things to you? See, you have to know something before you can become something. Christianity is not an emotional moment of just feeling good about God. There's no revelation in that. That's just a feeling. 
sometimes when you add to that kind of a, a moment and a feeling, a revelation from God in which he shows you something, your eyes are open and you see something. Well, you've just seen something that God wants to give you or wants you to understand. Whether it's a revelation about a change that needs to take place in your life or the fact that you're fretting over something that God's already made a provision for. You don't need to worry about that. You need to take no thought about that kind of stuff. Remember what he said in Hebrews? You don't have to turn to this. Hebrews eleven six, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. Then notice he said, for he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Those who diligently seek him. Well, then seeking is not a casual thing. I mean, we could say, well, we're here seeking the Lord tonight. You could be. But chances are you're just listening tonight. Hopefully you'll be inspired of something you ought to seek or something that uh, God wants to give you or God, something God wants to change. Something ought to happen. But he said he is a rewarder of those who diligently, with purpose, diligently seek him. One translation says concerning diligently seeking him, he said, of all those who make a serious search for him. And what would we search? Well, I'd search like this. God said, and I can remember these, these days, that, uh, that healing's in the atonement. That a provision was made by God for our physical, mental and everything else, well-being, but especially our physical well-being. He plainly said in Exodus 15, he said, I am the Lord who heals you. He made it a covenant name. I'm Yahweh Rofika or Rafal. I am your healer, your curer. He sent his word in Psalm 107 verse 20 and healed them. That's what his word does. His word is Proverbs 4. His word is health to all those that find it. Proverbs 4, 20, 23, 22. So, I mean, so that's clear. And he makes that kind of, of, a, of a provision for us that, that we can have what he said because it, it belongs to us. Hearing what I just said does not mean you believe it or that that's clear to you. Again, I can only remind myself or tell you about my own experiences, but the first time I heard about that, having been sick my whole life, I always was sick. I was never well all the time. First time I heard that, it was difficult for me to, to get it. And what I just said was that I don't doubt that you didn't say that. I can read that, but I, I, don't, I don't know if I got what you mean. Now, for me, searching is to get to the bottom of what God said, to ascertain the validity of it for me personally. Did you just say that to the Jews? In another time, a long time ago, or can I lay hold of that same promise for myself? Because for whatever reason, there's a lot of people who write books or pamphlets or preach sermons against healing. I don't know why. There's, there's so much of it in the Bible, I don't know why they're against it, but they don't want you to believe that you can be healed because they don't want you to, I guess, be disappointed. So I wrestle with that. Now, searching is a wrestling match. I want to know if it's true. I can read it, so I know it's true academically. I see it there. I'm not going to argue with that. The Bible's inspired and all that. But I'm not sure I got it in my heart to where I know that'll work for me. So searching is you doing that. Is it mine? I don't want to take your word for it. I thank you for telling me about it. You've got me wired now. But I want to find out for myself if that's true. I know brother so-and-so said it, my mother and my brother. I know all of these other people said it, but can I be sure myself that that's what that means to me? That's what searching is. Searching is when you said, okay, I'm going to find out, and I did. And not only did I find that out, but as I began to learn other things, and people got concerned. Brother Hamilton, Brother Tom, or back in those days it might have been Tommy. You're, uh, 
You're getting out there where the water's over our heads. Boy, you sure you, I mean, you claimed a car? Where, you, where in the Bible does it say you can claim a car? Well, Mark eleven twenty four. It doesn't say car. No, it doesn't. It says, it says thing, things. All these things shall be added. Didn't he say things in the Bible? Abundance of all things. Didn't Jesus say what things soever you desire? Well, I desired whatever, and I, but I was convinced then when I claimed it, I'd already sought the Lord. I was convinced. I wasn't claiming, hoping it works. Oh, I'm just going to try to confess this into reality. No. I believe it'll work. That's why I ask. It's faith first. Faith in the heart does not betray me. What betray me is when with my mind, I try to wrap my mind around the word and say what it says when my heart just doesn't agree with that. There's a war between here and here. But when my heart confirms the word of God and I'm at peace with that, that's when I release my faith. As I've said to you before, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that I would like to believe. There are some things that everybody, all of us would love to believe. I'd love to believe I could go empty the hospitals. But I can only believe what is in my heart. And what is not in my heart I can't believe it. I can't even, I can say I do, but I don't. But when my heart's involved, I can do it. It's the searching. It's that secret place. It's cutting out useless time and things in your life and getting before the Lord, maybe in a routine of searching, cross-references, spend an hour, two or three in here. Well, what does it say over here? What does that mean? What? All these computers y'all carrying around, these little phones, you can, can't you download Bible programs? Say yes. I know you can't because somebody put a couple on my phone for me. But uh, not that I know how to use them, but I got them. And, and you can punch in a Greek word and it'll, and, and it'll give you cross-references. Or you can get that little book, uh, 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 Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It has 500,000 cross-references in it. Almost every verse in the Bible has a cross-reference. And boy, it can, you can take off. And one, at some point, God seeing your heart and your hunger rewards you. He rewards you with something that is spiritual. You can't buy this. You can't earn it. It is given. It's grace. And God opens your eyes. And you behold wondrous things from his law, as the psalmist said, and you find yourself going, praise God. I believe that. Amen. And you come to church, you got a smile on your face. You got a joy in your step. You're singing too loud. Clapping too much. Somebody says, what is the wrong with you? And a man reminds himself, I am to be ready always to give an answer to every man for the joy and the exuberance that is in my heart. Say, I found a verse of Scripture. I found it. And I'm convinced that he said, and he's going to do it. God's going to supply my car. Brother Tom, now don't, now if you, now don't get this. You, you're going to get so disappointed believing that until they come driving up the driveway. That happened to me. You've heard it too many times to tell it again, but praise the Lord. Go to another familiar verse of Scripture, Psalms 24. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Remember that one? Psalms 24, all right. You'll like this. If you don't like this, you don't even have to turn to it. All right. <laughs> Psalms 24 and verse 3. Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Well, first of all, I say it's somebody that wants to. You're not going to be down here in Shelby Town one day and God give you a big shove in the back and wind up in the throat. Oh, oh, hey, you don't do that. You search for this, but here's the way it works. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness. From the God of his salvation, this, verse 6, this is a generation of those 
who read the King James Bible. Wait a minute. This is a generation of them that what? Seek him. You know why they don't talk the way they used to talk and act ugly and vile the way they used to? You know why they don't do those things without conviction? Because the entrance of the word, you seek and you'll find something. You found the truth. The truth is lodged in your heart and it becomes your conscience. And it's what compels you to do what is right and to, and to deny your self-life the things that it used to do. That's why you don't swear deceitfully and do all those things you used to do. Now you can come to the throne of God. There's a blessing awaiting you. This peace and joy, if that's all you ever had, you got more than the world will ever know. Peace and joy. And that your blessings are coming from the Lord. He rewards you openly. He does that. And he goes on to say that Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, you seek God with all of your heart and the scripture that you all know, if my people, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and say, seek, seek my face. God said, goes on to say, then will I hear from heaven and heal. But nothing happens, obviously, if in the midst of all this spiritual going on in your life, if you're not seeking God. And again, back where I was a while ago, seeking is when you're determined to find out how personal this word is between you and God. Can I claim that? Can I walk this way? Or is that a deception? Is the preacher misleading me when he says that? I need to find out for myself because I, I don't want to follow a man. I want to follow God. If the preacher said the right thing and I can see it in the Word, thank God for the, for the hose and the water that came out of it. But uh, I'm going to give God all the praise and all the glory for it. That's what ministry is supposed to do anyway. Seek first what? What do you say? Seek first the what? The kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is... See, this is a big theological subject. I mean, people, to me, in my simple mind, they, they, they use far too many words to explain the kingdom of God or try to show the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God and get into an exaggeration of words and ideas and so forth. Just take it for what it says. A kingdom is a realm a kingdom is a, is a realm in which there is a king that has dominion in that realm. And he rules in that realm. Now, in our case, the kingdom of God is not ruled by force. We don't walk around afraid we're doing something wrong all the time, though we believe in the fear of God. We don't have the freedom to do whatever we please. Well, God's drawn the boundaries for us. But the kingdom of God, I think the Bible said, in Romans 4, 17, let me say the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. All of that is from the Father upon all the subjects that will be in his kingdom. This is what we're going to experience. Our king is Jesus Christ. God is spirit. You cannot look and see God as spirit because there's no form like that, but God has manifested Himself in in Hebrews one and three. God has manifested Himself to us by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the physical representation of the invisible God. As the Bible teaches, when you see Jesus, you see God. Amen. And that's what He's like. And He lived on this earth. Showing us how to live. We took note of his life, the way he walked, the way he spoke, the things that he did. That's what he's like. You remember the Lord's Prayer when the Lord taught us earlier in chapter 6 about when we pray, pray like this. Remember that? And the first thing he did in the prayer in teaching us to pray was to acknowledge God. Our Father, which art in heaven, holy Revered and hallowed is your name. And the very first request he taught us to make was, Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done. That's the king in his kingdom. That's what we should want. I want to live under the dominion of God himself. He's revealed to me by Jesus Christ. I want him to be, as we say, Lord over my life. I consent to his lordship. I want him to be Lord. I'm asking him to rule over me. And he has every right to because he said you were bought with a price, weren't you? All we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous, what we're supposed to seek. There was none of us like that. But he, uh, he came down and rescued us and he made us his own. He said you were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. If he wants you, then he has a right to you. All things were made by him and for him, Jesus. That would include you. When God saved you, he saved you because he loves you. Why, I don't know why he would. He saved you because he loved you. He sent Jesus into the world to save you while you were sinners, didn't he? And he saved us and brought us out of darkness and begins this incredible journey of living the life that Jesus showed us how to live. The whole gospel is here. The whole gospel takes unfit people who are given the Spirit of God in their hearts with a corrupted mind and therefore corrupted actions and wills, and he sets us before his word to begin to change all of that. It's us walking with God willingly. I, by my will, choose to do what he has said to me. Why? Because God is turning us around from the way we were to the way he wants us to be, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are to grow up into him in all things. If we're to grow up into him, he must increase. What must we do? Decrease. Everything in us that is revealed to be evil or vile, and that's just about everything he shows us, that is against God, doesn't want to do it God's way, call it evil. He reveals it to us. And you, by your will, in love and appreciation for God, you surrender your will to God to cease from those things or to cut those things out of your life. And you're being changed from glory to glory, to glory. Things are making a transformation in your life. Your mind is being renewed and you're walking in newness of life. All of this is in preparation for living in his kingdom. I think a lot of people, and again, I'm not God. I don't know, I don't know things beyond what I know. I mean, spiritual matters, I'm only go so far. But I do not think that just because we live with church, we go to church, somehow we're ready for God's kingdom. How many of you believe that listening to sermons makes you spiritual? Doesn't at all, does it? I'm sure there's probably a lot of people in churches that are, that are vile, curse and drink and live with people and worse do drugs or sell drugs or molest. I don't know. There's some pretty bad creatures in this world. And going to church has never, ever changed anybody. Remember the verse in uh, Ecclesiastes, I think it's chapter 8. I can't tell you exactly where it is, but he said, I saw the wicked come and go from the house of God. They went in wicked. They came out wicked. Nothing in the house of God changed anything about their lifestyle. Now, do you suppose that when their life is over, they are fit for the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God, folks, is what, is what the preparation that we're going through now, all the demands that God is making on our life, is to prepare us. That's, why else would he leave us in this world? I mean, all of our weaknesses are exploited by the world. All of them are. Our flesh is what the world looks after. 
You crucify your flesh, the world has nothing that it can appeal to you on. I mean, it, there's nothing you can be tempted with if you're dead. If, like you said, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God, you begin to live like that, you'll overcome everything. You will overcome because he said you would. And that's what he wants you to do. But this business of being like Christ, the image of Christ, would you go back to Colossians 3, verse 8? But now you also put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. Don't do that anymore. Notice verse 10. Now, you young preachers in here, this is a good sermon text, verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed how? Does it say renewed in knowledge? How is a man made new? He, he learns something. He knows something. God shows him something, and he responds to it. Knowing doesn't do it. It's responding to what you know. He is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. This is what we are being prepared for now. It's God's kingdom. God rules in his kingdom. He reigns in his kingdom. He is fair and he is just. But that's what his righteousness is all about. And in this kingdom... In this kingdom that we are to seek after, God wants us to, to know that it, it, is, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure so that when it's over, he can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of your father prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Enter into, who, who's it for? For those who are faithful. Did he say that? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's who it's for. And all this stuff going on now, the wrestling match with faith and tomorrow and all of the kids growing up and the marriages and money, all of these issues that you wrestle with that God is teaching you how to deal with them are all a part of your preparation. It's all a part of you getting ready for his coming, looking for him when he comes. Your mouth will start saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There's nothing left in this world that has any appeal to me. The world is vile. I didn't. But all you have to do is watch a halftime of some of these football games. And see, just how vile it is and what people lusting after. Or what their evil concupiscence, that means lust and appetites, are for. And the more you draw nigh to God, the more that stuff becomes repulsive. You watch, you mark it down. More and more of the things that you think you're, you really like now, you're going to start drawing away from that too because of the nastiness and the ugliness and whew, the anti-Christ about all of this stuff. You'll find yourself saying, Lord, come quickly. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. And we will suffer persecution. And if we suffer, we're going to reign. Turn to Acts 14, 22. Acts 14, verse 22. We must, the part where it begins by saying, we must through what? Much tribulation enter into his kingdom. What if you avoid tribulation? I don't mean to be ugly. I'm not being ugly. What do you do then when Tribulation comes to you because of your testimony. Remember the sower and the seed? By and by, the Bible said he was offended because of the word. And he turned away and he went back. It was asking too much. The philosophy of this world, the spiritual philosophy of this world say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Come on. I mean, after all, God doesn't, God ain't going to hold. You're not going to hell because of that. That kind of talk. And so people start leaning with that kind of, yeah, well, you know, I don't get that. And so the word loses its meaning. But he's not going to say, well done, thou faithful servant, if we weren't faithful, is he? I mean, God help us if we're not faithful. How will you ever be faithful back again to seek it? If, if you never seek after God to get to the bottom, Lord, show me. 
How can you ever come to the place where you're willing to let him reign over you in his kingdom as you just surrender your will to him? It's the way God wants us to live, folks. Live in his kingdom that way. And finally, in closing, seek first the kingdom of God and his what? Righteousness. Again, this is another theological subject. Doesn't have to be lengthy and difficult. We speak of righteousness. The standard and the norm for righteousness is God. The revelation of God of his sinlessness, his character, all of his ways, his decrees, the things that he has said. He, he, he is just and holy. Well, we sing it in Deuteronomy 32, we just and right is he. That's what God is. He cannot do wrong. He cannot say wrong. What he says in his word is not unfair. God is just. No man can ever call God unfair. And what he says, he says. He is just and he is right and he is true. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after that. Being like him. Can we be like him? Would he end chapter 5 by saying, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect? Whoa. Whoa. Get out the minus machine. That can't mean that. Well, that's what it does mean. That's what he said. The kingdom of, of God and his righteousness. All that live godly shall suffer persecution because the more you do that's right. And righteousness to me is simply, I could say this, all the right things and ways of God. That's the standard you compare anything by. It's what you're doing right before God. What you're watching, is it right before God? What you're wearing, is it right is it something that would get his approval? We're supposed to live like this. We look at Jesus and the way that he lived. He courted no man's favor. He, uh, well, he was who he was. He lived the way he lived. He was, he was discarded by his friends and, and, and his family. They said he was mad. They rejected him at the cross. He died alone, died, died on a cross bore the curse of the law on the cross. Horrible way to die. He did it for us. And, and he, never, he never gave up. He never looked, looked back. And he says to us, right before he died, he said, the world's going to hate you because you're living like I want you to. It's not you they hate. It's me they hate. In John 7, 7, and in John chapter 15, he said it again. If the world hates you, know that it first hated me. If you, when you were a sinner and you were living like a dog, nobody hated you. You were fun. You were the life of the party and a good old boy, good old girl and all of that. But since you've had this change of life, this transformation, this conversion, you're not fun anymore. You're being rejected now, talked about, persecuted. The church you're going to has ruined you. You're a cult. Used to be this, used to be that. Used to have a lot of fun. You were all right at one time, but not anymore. Jesus said, listen at these words. Jesus said this to his disciples concerning trouble and persecution. He said, you are they which have continued with me in my temptations. You never forsook me when I was tempted and rejected and the world was hammering on us. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father has appointed one unto me. Think of that. You are the ones who continued with me in my temptations. Let me ask you something. Where is Christ now personally? Where is he? He lives within my heart. Christ in you is the hope of glory. As God is in Christ, God is also in you, working in you a way that Christ would lead you to go. This is the way he would want us to live. This is the way he would want us, want us to act. 
And he said, the trouble you're getting, the rejection you're getting, the ugly things, the rumors that people say about you, it's because of what you believe. He said, as my father has appointed me a kingdom, I'm also appointing you one. You know what it is? It's the kingdom of God. What emphasis does the Bible put on us entering into his kingdom? We can't fathom, I can't, what that's like. Oh, people write songs about on the other side and entering in and all of that, but I don't know. But there has to be something, and the best word I can think of is magnificent, about leaving this life and entering to the one that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. All because you measured your ways carefully. You measured your speech. Because as you seek the kingdom of God, you begin to be keenly aware of what is right as well as what is wrong. And your decision is to do the right thing. And you're letting Christ, when you do that, when you yield to Christ like that, you're letting him reign and rule in your life at the expense of you being troubled, losing a job, maybe put to death. Many martyrs put to death because of Jesus. That's the way it was with them. But all of this life that's going on now, all that we're going through in life now, all of this conforming to his image, and all this growing up into him and everything is in preparation for his coming and it's marked, it's seen in us living the way he has said to live. That's the right way. You see, righteousness is more than just a text in the Bible. It's also a deed. Closing. First Peter 3, verse 13 and 14. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, Happy are you. Do not be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. See, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, it's something you did. And the Bible said, be not deceived. One of these verses in here says, be not deceived. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So you can, you can ask yourself, is what I'm doing right? You don't have to ask the world, well, how many of y'all think I'm right? Is, is anybody? No, we don't have to ask anybody. All we have to do is go to the Word. Is what I'm doing right? What, is what I'm doing right now, is this right? Is it right to proclaim the Word? Is it right to come and hear it? Yes. Those are right ways. Those are right things for us to do, and we should do all of that. That other verse is 1 John 3, 7. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. So I ask myself to judge myself, to be just and fair on the behalf of God, not compromise me, not make excuses. Am I doing right? Am I living right? Am I treating you right? Is this the right thing to do? All I have to do is find out in the Bible if God confirmed that it's the right thing to do, and then I can not be proud, but I can just say, praise the Lord. That's the way it works. Well, close your Bible. Bow your heads. As we pray, as I pray, take a brief moment tonight. Just examine yourself, your heart, your life. No excuses, no compromises. Just reach a just verdict if you have to against yourself. It's between you and God. Are you seeking the kingdom? Are you interested in what it's all about? Do you really want to know? Chances are God will not show you everything you need to know in a meeting. That's between you and him alone. We call it communion and fellowship. Time in the secret place. And if you are seeking the kingdom or you want to, 
Do you really want God to reign over you? Do you really acknowledge his lordship? And is it evident by the choices you're making and his right ways that you're incorporating? Heavenly Father, you're the judge of all men's hearts. No man can see what you see. No man can deny what you show him. You deal with us, Lord, in a way that we all benefit from. Make us to be aware of ourselves, of a cross that is ours, of a crucifixion that has to take place. Open our eyes to see what you're saying in this word and make us glad-hearted and joyful about what's going to happen to us if we do all this. We'll enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. May your blessing rest upon those here tonight, those who listen, in Jesus' name. Amen.